I think we'll get no, it. No, you guys are a serious group of people here. I mean, from the offices and the setup. Yeah. So Thank you. Okay, cool. So we're here back at the Real Estate Roundtable with IPRG, and today we want to talk about ground-up development and the condo market and land prices and just um, you know real estate in general. Um, we have Arik Barheim here as a guest. Welcome. Nice. Thank you. Nice to meet you. Nice to be here, guys. Yes. Nice opportunity. A hundred percent. So we're also here with Justin and Donald and we were just talking before we started recording and we've we've sold Auric a number of, of pieces right. of land. Right. Um, I mean I guess a lot of these are actually houses on like 25 by 100 foot lots but yes. with residential zoning and you put together you know like these 25 footers you put together 50 footers you're buying off of us now, I think, what is it, an 86 footer? It's, uh, Eight, yeah, it's a 62 and a half with conjunction to 223. Yeah. It's an 87 and a half footer. Yeah. Yeah, so 87 and a half by 100. Is that, is that the biggest? The it's great. Yes. <laughs> uh, yes, actually, it is the biggest. Uh, so far, yes. Yeah. And yeah, there's an existing structure there too. That, that's a pretty interesting deal. It's uh, multiple lots and subdivision. Yes. Of, yes. a, of an existing lot. Yes, yes. This property was very complicated to analyze. Me and Donald spend a lot of time on it. But there's there's a house on it. There's a vacant land portion on it. So what we're doing, we're subdividing it. We're cutting it at the building line, renovating an alteration, a quick, relatively quick alteration one uh, rental building, which we just discussed before. That's the brick structure. That's the brick structure. You're doing an alt one. We're doing an alt one. It's an existing five-family. We're keeping it as a five-family for tax purposes and maximizing the value of the building in case the exit would be to sell. <clears throat> and then on the vacant portion, we're building a new building. So we're also transferring air rights from the existing building to the new lot in order to have the absolute uh, you know, perfect layout for the NB. And <clears throat> the NB is going to be across... Both lots, 221 and 223? No. So 223 was too far along. Got it. Um, we actually started that. We finished up the demo, and we're building a separate 25-footer there. Uh, but there will be a nice 37-and-a-half-footer, uh, two-bedroom, two-bathroom uh, building elevator that goes directly into the units. Uh, the way I like the setup. Beautiful. Yes. I've, I've, I've learned, and you mentioned medicine before, 959 Medicine yeah. from Bushwick. That was a 33-footer, right? That was a 33-footer, and that's what I did over there. Yeah. And, you know, I thought it would be like a gimmick, but the, the three units that sold first were the three units that the elevator goes directly into the apartment. People love that. I think it's the first building in Bushwick. I might be wrong. Mm. I think it's the first building in Bushwick that did this. Nobody really wants to put the money there yet to do those kinds of stuff, but we did, and it paid off. Yeah. Uh, so the, the same thing we're doing in uh, Williamsburg. Obviously, it's not a new concept to Williamsburg, uh, but it's it's apparently a beautiful concept that people love. Yeah. So the, the elevator shaft goes right in the center of the building, then opens directly into the, into the units. Every floor has two units. And what it allows us to do also is to minimize hallway space. 
I always, when I design as buildings, I always think how I can minimize hallways, unusable space. Uh, that's why I really love the layout of a bedroom, living room, bedroom in those units, mm-hmm. as opposed to a living room, bedroom, bedroom. Yeah. Because then you have that hallway to go into the bedrooms. This this uh, classic layout, this hallway is unusable square footage. Hmm. But when you have the bedroom, living room, bedroom, there's not a single square footage in this apartment mm-hmm. that's a unusable square footage. And people feel how, how how bigger the unit the unit is. So it's just an overall. I found out over over the years that people prefer that layout, sells better. Um, it's so great. That's what we're doing there. Yeah, it's it seems be a nice paid building. off. Yeah. And a lot of the product that you deliver um, doesn't have really high maintenance costs for for the end user, right? Like for the most part. Correct. It does not. Uh, these buildings usually the the common charges are comprised of you know regular stuff like cable cable company, fire mm-hmm. alarm, uh, insurances, with, you know, maybe a super, which all the buildings have. When you have an elevator, increases a little bit more yeah. uh, by a couple of tens of bucks a month, but that's about it. Yeah. So, Commenters are very low. People love that a lot. Yeah, Got some, it. Yeah, some of the bigger buildings, you know, could go you know, 2000 2500 a month in, in maintenance. Exactly. If they have a lot of amenities. Exactly. So you have the, those amenities, which is a bonus, mm-hmm. but at the same time, you have those crazy uh, monthly costs not everybody can afford. Yeah. Yeah, personally, I think that that's like a real turnoff to me, and I think that's why the condo market in Williamsburg, Bushwick, some of these 25 by 100 footers, they do so well because it's like they're buying a condo. They're not having that huge weight of an HOA fee, right. the taxes, because they don't have to pay for an indoor pool. <laughs> and I have to pay for the gym. Like in some of these buildings on one wall across the street from us, their HOA fees, what they have to pay, are just so high. Very, very high. Yeah. Yes. <clears throat> yeah, you can get a, a 20 bucks membership uh, today at a gym. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right? I, I don't or, need a gym in my or, building, or, really. Or a $300 a month membership. <laughs> or $300 a month, depending on yeah, where yeah. you go to. But, yeah, you, you don't really yeah. need that. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. I, I, it's a good point, Donald. I, I see those buildings... Uh, I saw that in Prospect Heights because I built 349 Prospect Heights and we just sold it now in the midst of the crisis, the interest rate crisis. Uh, obviously, things slowed down tremendously, but we still were able to sell it for an average of $1,400, a square feet. We're talking about a walk-up building. Yeah. Uh, and there's this big amenity building in Prospect Heights. That's like the big comp. Uh I forgot the the address. It's right on the main avenue. Um, but the, it's so expensive. It's so the, the units there is are so one, expensive. Is that People, one Prospect Park West, right? Uh, no, no, not I think this no. one. Are you referring to like Washington Avenue or? I'm referring to Washington Avenue. No, actually, not Washington. There's some really Avenue. expensive properties right there off Eastern Parkway in Washington. Yeah, I know. Um, yeah. I'll remember the yeah. the name of the street. I'll check in a sec. But there's a big amenity building overlooks the train, uh, very close to Barclay Center. Mm. Considers to be in Prospect Heights. What bedrooms go for over a mil? Yeah. So you can go to one of these buildings. You can pay two thousand dollars a month, yeah. uh, common charges, and get a gym and a pool, and pay uh, one mil plus mm-hmm. for a one bedroom with an okay layout. Or you can come to one of our boutique buildings and buy. Uh, a better uh, layout apartment 
uh, for eight hundred thousand and pay two hundred dollars a month common charges. Uh, so what would you do? So it depends on the buyers, but I feel it's a better it's a better product. Nominally, it's cheaper. Nominally, it's cheaper, um, and you don't get less. So, <clears throat> so, the, so the common charges here are really that low on, on your properties. Yes, because on a walk-up building, you don't have much. Yeah. What do you What do you do regarding the taxes? Like, like these are NBs, right? So these are right. ground-up construction. That's an excellent question. First of all, every development that I do. Real estate taxes. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Every development that I do, I try to first thing see if I can file it as an alteration. Because if I can somehow file it as an alteration, the end taxes would be low. Have you done that? I have. Okay. I have 1230 Bedford Avenue. Mm-hmm. 1230 Bedford Avenue is is a new is, is an alteration type one building. It has it had a commercial floor. We we did a vertical and horizontal extension on the building. That's nice. how we filed it. Yeah. Uh, the end taxes came out to be less than $30,000 a year for the whole building. How many units? You're talking about an eight-family, uh, 850 square feet, two-bed, two bathrooms, elevator building, and a, com- and a commercial store on the first floor. $30,000 for the whole building. Wow. So, yeah. Okay, so that's, that's on the verge of a tax abatement. Are, are, are you able to convey that, like, value add to... To the end buyers in that situation, absolutely. And so you could get you, know, you could we, translate we it to a that. higher price. Yes, we yeah. used that in our marketing, and we broke record. We sold uh, units on Bedford specifically. I remember the penthouse we sold for one point. I believe it was one point six million dollars, guys. It was a three bed, mm-hmm. um, about a thousand square feet, uh, with a private roof deck. You know, one of the one of the variables were the low taxes. Yeah. You know, the rest of the units in the build that was an anomaly maybe, but even the rest of the units in the building, uh, we sold for thirteen hundred a foot on average, I believe. You're still talking Bedsty. You're still talking a main mm-hmm. road, a busy yeah. road, Bedford mm-hmm. Avenue. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so that was very very impressive. People put a lot of weight on on the low monthlies. And the how about on the um, the NBs? The new builds. Yeah, so on the NBs, it's a challenge. It's a challenge. Uh, people got used to it on the better areas, but if you're if you're building a, a, a building in Bushwick or Bed-Stuy, uh, it's tough. It's tough to have people pay these amounts of money, and it affects your, your price at the end that you're because able to sell. Because the real estate sell. taxes. Correct. H- how does it work? Like, how do you calculate the real estate taxes on an NB, or how does that get passed on to the condo buyers? Or, you know, you see these... Um, Condo units that have four twenty one A's, is is that something that's even in, in the game and anymore? Four twenty one A expired uh, as of now, as well as uh, you know, as well as the J fifty one and and other programs that developer developers used to use. Um, the only thing that applies today and applied before in the past, and I tell that to all my buyers, uh, whether it's an NB and Altuan, it doesn't matter if you purchase a condo. To live in it, you can get a seventeen and a half percent, or I believe it's seventeen percent uh, discount. If you're an, if you're a live, if you're going to live in the unit, if you're not going to rent it out mm-hmm. as an investor, you're eligible for that discount so, on the real estate taxes. Correct. You oh, get wow. a seventeen percent uh, discount. It's okay. just a matter of filing it in time, uh, and you get it. Got that's, it. That's as of right. That. But there's no tax abatements. No. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. 
So people in, in, in better areas have gotten used to paying. You know that, Justin, you, you work so much in these areas as well. Yeah. They've gotten used to pay, you know, hundreds of thousands. One bedrooms can pay easily seven $8,000 a year, you know, in taxes. Mm-hmm. $700 a month. And how about for the bigger units? Yeah, even more. Uh, two bedrooms, tax would typically be more than $1,000 a month. So that's why we do try to outwand those buildings if we can. Two to three frost, mm-hmm. we did file as an alteration type one, so it'll be interesting to see what the taxes will come out to be. You asked how they're being calculated. Uh, on I don't an NB? Yes. Yeah. On an NB or an Altwan or, or anything for that matter. I don't know the exact formula, uh, but they do take into consideration. The Department of Finance does take into consideration uh, whether it's an NB or an Alt-1, and I've seen it firsthand with the buildings that I've built. The Alt-1s were significantly, tax significantly lower than my NB, NBs. It was, uh, it was a big deal. So um, we, I, I was looking, you know, before you came in, so you've done, you've done like like 20 or more projects <laughs> in, yes. in New York, right? And, and I don't know about like how many units you've actually sold versus how many are in development, but it's like well over 100 units. Yeah, that's about right. That's yes. pretty cool. Yeah. Um, so how how did you like? What what was the first deal? Like what was like what like what was your first real estate deal? Was it a condo deal? Was it something else? Yes, yes. It's it's a good. I mean, I guess my first first deal <clears throat> was as, as an investor. That's how I got started to begin with. Okay. Um, I was in Israel back then. I was working as a, as a CPA in KPMG. It's a global firm. Yeah. Probably heard. Yeah. Know it. <laughs> um, but it wasn't for me, and I got connected with a group of uh, friends that were doing real estate here. Uh, they purchased uh, a parcel of lot in Bushwick on Wilson Avenue, 46 Wilson Avenue. And uh, I got in with them, and you know, they, we built this building, and we sold, and uh, I saw the process and how it went, and my eyes were like, oh my God, I gotta come here and try to do this myself. Uh, so that was kind of my first uh, my first deal, um, but I was very passive in it. I was an investor. Mm-hmm. Um, when I came here, I started working as a project manager just to learn, to learn the ins and outs of uh, the zoning rules, how to build, and obviously with time, I got connected with investors and banks and uh, all the other stuff that you need in order to put together a deal. The first deal I did. I believe it was it was a condo deal, of course, and it was um, 77 Kingsland Avenue. Yeah. So it's, it's, I know. <laughs> yeah, the location was off. It was in East East Williamsburg. Um, but it paid off. It paid off. Uh, we built a, a nice building there. And from then, it just, it just grew. I kind of learned how these properties are best developed. Um, and um, and it went from there. Yes, we did one after the other. Um, <clears throat> and when you say how they're best developed, is that like you bought a lot of these twenty-five footers? Yeah. So you just like got like the program down and like the layouts, and it's kind of like like rinse and repeat, just build yes, like so a similar building each time. Yes. So in, in yeah. the beginning, it was a lot of trial and error. Mm-hmm. In the beginning, I was. Uh, researching a lot of different layouts, elevators, walk-ups, uh, four units, six units, seven units, uh, 
I, when I started working, I predominantly worked in East Williamsburg, and I think that mm-hmm. every person has to uh, to match the product that he does to who he thinks the audience is going to be at the end of the day. And East Williamsburg is predominantly still a young neighborhood. It's a young neighborhood. Young families, um, young professionals, uh, Google workers, Microsoft workers, accountants, attorneys, people who work in the city. So I figured it's better for me to build smaller, efficient units, whether it's a small one-bedroom, small two-bedrooms. And this really paid off. This really paid off. This was definitely the correct strategy for that neighborhood, and this is why the project was so successful. Mm -hmm. I've seen similar projects, same size, same zoning, selling for a million dollars less. And the difference was the planning, the layout, behind those those buildings uh, just to kind of match it better with the audience. Um, yeah, so that's what we did. We nice. Yeah, I mean, from looking at some of your projects, obviously the East Williamsburg projects from when you first started, I mean, you always had a pretty good finger on the pulse of like what a young person would want, like especially someone living in Williamsburg. Right. That, that'd be like the type of stoves you put in or the type of islands that you did. Right. And I even see it in the new buildings that we toured together. Like you still do that stuff, but those are – those are very important things when someone's looking to buy a condo. I see a lot of other sites or a lot of new development projects where even the kitchens, for example, it's just one side flat kitchen where it doesn't, I don't think appeals to like the younger generation as much as how you have like that you where you can put bar stools. So certain things like that, I think really do well. Absolutely. When when selling. Absolutely. It's the finishes. It's the design. Uh, People like to work from home today especially with everything that happened with it. When I started, there was no pandemic, mm-hmm. but I was still thinking about those things. Mm-hmm. How can I take a unit and still create a nook in the apartment that people don't have to work in the living room? Because I noticed that I'm selling these units and people just put a working table inside their living room next to their couch. Uh, so I was starting to think, how can I create nooks inside the living room, maybe take a portion of the bedroom, create a nook that people can put a table and work separately. Um, and people appreciate those kinds of things. So you can get two units that have essentially the same square footage in the same area, but their layout differentiates them. Mm-hmm. You know the, the way they're they can be used. Um, yeah, so uh, that, that's what I try to do. Creativity, I feel, is the name of the game. For sure. You know, so yeah, it, it is it is a rinse and repeat, mm-hmm. but you still have to try to be. Every project you have to try to be more creative than the project that you did before. You know, so it's a rinse and repeat, but you gotta improve it, perfect yeah. it um, in, in, in those terms. Um, all right, and then, so when, when you're out looking to buy these development sites and you get like listings from us, I mean, we, we oftentimes just throw like a price per buildable square foot on it based yeah. on other similar, right. you know, lots that are selling. And, you know, we go to the owners that have have these houses or these these lots and, we basically just price it off of, um, you know, our, our pretty simple formula of price per buildable square foot. Right. But um, when when you get these listings and you're looking at the valuation, are you doing like like a full like type of underwriting, development underwriting in terms of acquisition costs and financing and hard costs and soft costs and, and projected sellout, or do you have it just narrowed down to be like, oh yeah, I'll pay, <laughs> you know, four hundred a buildable or whatever the price may be. You know, I love that question. Okay. Because. Uh, many people do it that way. 
Um, and, and it's not good to do it this way mm -hmm. because you do have different variables that go into different lots. Even though they can be the same 25 by 100 R6Bs, they're still different. Some, some lots have higher water tables. You can't do a proper basement. That will dramatically affect your sellout. Some, you know, it, there's 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 different. Some some sites are e-designated, so you have to clean the soil. You have to go through uh, certain agencies in the in, in the city to get those things done. Some some are MTA. There's MTA work mm -hmm. related around them if they're in proximity to an above ground train or below ground train. So you have to take all of those things into consideration um, when you look at a property. Especially when you work with investors, you work with other people's money. It's very, very important to analyze the, the risk factors um, to make sure that you can deliver on the business plan mm -hmm. that ultimately uh, you're showing them. Yeah. Uh, so I do, I, I do do detailed budgets, but it's quick. Okay. You know, it doesn't take days. It takes a couple hours because, you know, you do have those formulas and price per square footage is yes that you use. Mm -hmm. Uh, so you can get a quick feedback to you guys, to the person who's selling the property, uh, but also a knowledgeable feedback. I don't like to come up and just say it's worth less. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. I like to explain why. <laughs> it doesn't always help. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. the 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 price threshold for, I would say, two and a half million dollar properties and under is low. Is low. A lot of starter investors, starter developers. Um, mm -hmm. would be willing in many cases to pay more. Um, and I admit, I, I was like that in the beginning as well. Chasing deals? Yes. I think everyone o Overpaying is. just to get projects going? Yes, yes. Yeah. You know, I, I, looking back, there were a, the, there's a couple of projects that I probably would not have taken. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, knowing everything that I know today, uh, which was a mistake which was a mistake because I should have taken them because they did end up well, but they had risks that today I would probably be less willing to take. Mm -hmm. It's just then I was inexperienced and I wasn't fully aware of those risks. That's the difference. So, so you mentioned risk factors. Like what are, like are there like, like what are the buckets of like the primary risk factors on, on a project? Right. Uh, I think it's probably the most important topic Okay. when you talk about development uh, probably all over the world and, you know, specifically in New York. Um, when you approach investors, uh, you know, the, the tendency, a lot of entrepreneurs, the tendency is just to speak about the good things. Obviously, nobody wants to speak about uh, the less appealing things and the risks. Um, so they stress the fact, you know, we can get you this and this return per year, but they do not discuss risks. I almost think it would be a, a smarter decision from an investor's point of view to to get to get less per year if he knows that the risk factor is lower. So people don't really know how to assess risks mm -hmm. and they rely on the developers and the entrepreneurs. That creates a lot of issues. There's so many examples of, of things going south because of those reasons. Um, so if you're asking about buckets, the first thing I would say is situation with neighbors. It's the first thing I would look at. Uh, I would look um, how uh, how much of, of, of the situation with the neighbors uh, will allow me to build a smooth building, uh, 
obviously there's always going to be some issues, but you want to make sure that you're not going into a situation that can delay you for years. Okay. Yeah, so they can really ruin your. They can really ruin your life. Correct. <laughs> yeah. So, for example, and it could cost you a lot of money, right? A tremendous amount of money. Yeah. With yeah. like access agreements. And access agreements and stuff like that. You would want to avoid. You can't always avoid, obviously, uh, but you would want to avoid a situation where you have a huge neighbor, ne- a, a huge building next to you with a lot of tenants and a complex ownership structure, because then you know you have to speak to so many people to get even the simplest things agree to. The law is on your side, the developer side, when it comes to those things in a way that they have to give you permission to protect their building while you're building. They cannot say, no, we don't agree for you to put protection on our property so you can't build yours, Mm -hmm. but they can extort you during that process. Uh, They can drag you to a court of law, uh, accrue legal fees, uh, you know, ridiculous access fees and stuff like that. So, mm-hmm. you know, definitely to a startup developer, I would not recommend to to go and build a development next to a neighbor like that. Um, I would look to see if I can the condition of the foundation of the neighbors, because depending on the depth of the of the neighbors' foundations, it'll kind of determine if you can do a basement on your building. You're saying on a piece of land. On a piece of land or on a building that you knock down or oh, okay. on a building that you alter and you want to deepen mm-hmm. to create foundation to or deeper basement to, you need to know the situation of the basement, of your neighbor's basements, how deep they are. How do you figure that out? Um, there's ways to do that. You know, you can knock on the door and just, you know, ask them to go in. You can say, you know, I'm, I'm looking to purchase this property uh, before I do so. People, you know, appreciate that mm-hmm. in most cases. I want to check your, your basement foundations to see to make sure if I need to do something to protect it while I'm doing my work. Interesting. Um, uh, so you kind of get that information. You can even get very general information just by looking from the street because sometimes there's those hatches in New York. You can yeah. count the steps of how many steps there are to the basement. You can easily know how deep their basement is from grade level. Um, so that gives you a pretty good idea uh, right there and then without doing anything. Um, okay. So that's the first thing I would say. A situation with neighbors, yeah. there's a lot of things that go into that. Second thing mm. I would check is uh, if there's any special authorizations and approvals you need from the city that are outside of the norm. We mentioned this before. E-designation, whether your property is listed as E-designation, whether it's uh, landmarked, uh, whether... Um, you know, whether it's uh, in proximity to a train, an MTA structure, whether underground or above ground, there's things that go along with that as well. Serious costs that go go along with that, especially when it's an underground train that goes on the street. Have you done projects with I have, those I have, obstacles? I have, E-designation, MTA? I have, yes. What about new building in a landmark district? I have. I've done all, all three. Right. <laughs> nice. Yes. yes. Way to go. Yes. So the, 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 the properties with... You know, in a way, those properties can be opportunities for an ex- more experienced developer. For sure. That knows how to deal with them, knows how to take those costs in advance, uh, because a lot of a lot of others would prefer to just shy away from those properties. So then the price would be more reasonable. Mm-hmm. St- staying right. on this topic real quick, um, what is it like building a new building in a landmark district? Because I, I just never fully understood how that works. And 
you see a lot of a lot of sites or pieces of land in landmark districts that just never get built. Yeah, I mean, with landmark is is a very difficult agency to deal with. Um, you have to go through several, you know, several processes to get your job approved, and it all depends. If you're gonna do just interior stuff, it's very easy. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you want to start adding up a story, if you want to change the windows, even. No, it's not changing the windows is not complicated, but it's not as easy as interior renovation because Landmark looks at the exterior details of a building and they want it to be as close as possible to the historical photos um, mm -hmm. of, of that property. They will never let you extend it on the back or add another story if it doesn't correlate with the rest of the block, right. if it'll look weird, if it yeah. look unrelated to the, to the rest from of the, the backyard block. or from view Both. from the street. You from would be amazed. Both. So they, they, they... Not only from the street. From yes. the backyard. Yes. <laughs> That's so I, I, I built one uh, landmark building where I literally had a meeting with um, the personnel that was in charge, the project manager in the landmark district. Is this an NB or an Alt-1? This was an Alt-1. Okay. Yes. Uh, they came, they met me at the property, and we suggested a penthouse. Uh, so they wanted to make sure it's not visible from the street. Yeah. from various angles. So they were walking with me on the sidewalk to both ends of the street, looking at the property physically and taking pictures to make sure that it's, you know, the, the, the penthouse is built. I had to build it sloped in a way wow. <laughs> that you can't see from certain angles. Yeah. So they're very, very particular in that way. So again, it, it all depends on the scope of work that you propose and you want to do, you know? And, yeah. Uh, okay. Um, Let's keep moving forward. So what other yeah. risk buckets and factors are we talked about neighbors, we talked about um, special um, right. special situations with like the E designation or the MTA or landmarks. Right. Um, so you know you've got you've got another risk factor that's really is not really related to the deal itself. I, I would say financing. Mm -hmm. Financing is, is, is a factor that can eat up a project if not being used correctly. Um, I would always yeah. tend to purchase properties cash um, instead of taking an acquisition loan if I don't have to, uh, simply because the initial, there always needs to be, we always need to put more importance in the initial stages of the project, just demolition, foundation, um, and to a lesser extent structure. Those and plans approvals in the beginning. Those stages can take longer, and it would be better for the project not to have a, a, an interest-bearing debt on the property during this time frame uh, because it can prolong for mm -hmm. various reasons and all those risks we've talked about. Mm -hmm. Everything comes into place in the beginning. If there's water in the ground, if you have, you know, you have to negotiate with your neighbors on an access agreement, it can take you a month and it can take you six months. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, an interest-bearing debt is going to eat up uh, a lot of that, and, and it's an unknown factor. So I would recommend just uh, to buy them cash if possible, um, depending on the risk. Frost is a great example, for example, the, the deal that we're doing now. Why? Because... I'm building a new building in between two properties that I own. Yep. So I don't have any neighbors. <laughs> and I also don't have any demolition because there's no existing structures on the property. So I don't mind taking an acquisition loan. 
because I know that my risk factors are very, very low. I don't have to negotiate with everybody. I can just get my plans approved, break ground right away. Are you getting plans approved prior to closing? That's always the goal, but not necessarily. Yeah. It depends on you know how much time the seller agrees to, 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 to give us before we close, but that's always the goal. That's a great thing to do if you can. That's a great thing to do if yeah, you can. Yeah, for sure. Um, because it definitely shortened the time frames of the project as a whole. Yeah. 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 yeah okay. So that's about it. That's it, it, what I would that say. Those are the three buckets. Favors, Those so. are the three buckets. Yeah. yeah. Those are the three main risk factors of the deal. So but what are the targeted returns? On, you know on, what? On I would projects. add one. Yeah, that's here. I would add one. <laughs> okay. I would add one. I feel and like, yeah, I feel like there's more. Yeah. The, no, first, the first one that comes more, to mind for me is like just market timing. Like. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean. I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, but yeah, I get, these are, these are related to the deal. These could really yes. hold, hold you I, up in place. In a situation where you found a piece of land, you're working in a market that you know you want to work, and you found a piece of land you want to buy. From that point on, what are the risks? Obviously, there's the risks that come before, which is what you just said. Mm -hmm. Should I even buy? Is yeah. the market good? You know, this, the market research is something you need to do in advance. Um, but once you've decided to go on a project, you go on that crazy journey to build a building in New York City, these are the risks. Yeah. You know? Um, and, and one thing I would add to the bucket is insurances. Hmm. You know, many, many developers, especially startup developers, do not understand the world of risk that they enter when they're starting to build a building in New York City, um, and specifically in New York City. Because here there's a very old law, there's a scaffold law and labor laws that make it very easy for em uh, employees that gets injured on the job, whether it's a fraudulent claim or a real claim, to sue the, the general contractors and the develop and the owners and the developers, as opposed to their direct employer, the subcontractor. So an employee that works for a structural subcontractor gets injured. The first thing he does, he, he makes a claim with the workers' compensation policy of his direct employer, but that's limited. A hundred, two hundred thousand, you know, sometimes more, but that's limited. He'll usually go for the higher yeah. for the bigger bucks. And and mm -hmm. the law in New York allows him to sue third parties in a liability suit. Third parties means the general contractor that hired this sub and the owners directly. So this opens up the owners and the general contractors to huge liability. Mm. Okay, so when the when the developer builds a building, he has to make sure that there's uh, a coverage for those types of in instances. So if there's a third party lawsuit, his policy covers these types of claims. These policies are more expensive. It's a very challenging issue in New York, extremely challenging issue. You're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars to a proper insurance policy that insures you from labor law claims. Uh, there's a way to lower that. There's project-specific insurances that people sometimes use. Wow. Um, so there's there's way around this, but mm. that's definitely a bucket. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Uh, yes. Yeah. That's a huge yes. amount. That's a, that's a huge a, amount, and if you're not properly covered, the reason why that's a problem is because there's there's precedences in the courts today where employees can, can lean the building. Yeah. They can just lean the building. <clears throat> So now you have a worker that's, God forbid, lost a, lost an eye or fell and, and 
and can't work for a couple of years, you can, you can put, you know, we're talking in hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars of liens yeah. on the property. So then you can't sell it properly. Wow. You know, you can't exit. Um, it just spirals everything out of control. So those insurance policies are, are very, very important, especially in those larger project projects. Those risks are more bound to happen. Yeah. yeah. Well, that makes sense. So, like, what? So, what are the targeted returns that that you look for for your investors? Okay, that's a good question. Um, I I look for anywhere between fifteen to twenty percent yearly. Anywhere between fifteen to twenty percent yearly return to the investors. That's what I shoot for, and uh, I can say that all the all the projects that we've done over the past six years have given that or more. Um, and what's what's like the timeline of a of a typical project from like when you when you buy it until the units get sold? So if it's if it's a property that requires demolition um, of an existing structure, I would say anywhere between two to three years. That long? Yeah, I know. It sounds it sounds long. I always say three because I like. It does sound long. Yeah, I, I always say three because. Why does it take so long? It, well, it takes you about six months to get the, the plans approved, and you can do the demolition simultaneously. It's taking that long to get approved plans yeah. for an NB and yes. DOB? Yes. Yes. Yeah. It can take a little less, uh, but and more, you, you more do, often than not, it takes longer. And you, you do demo plans in advance, you demo yeah, while you're simultaneous. still... Yeah, simultaneously. Correct. Okay. Correct. The reason why it, it takes that long is because uh, people don't realize that it's not just the Department of Buildings. It takes you at least two, three months to, to get the set ready for DOB. Yeah. You know, people forget about that time. They think, oh, I filed the plans today. Why should it take six months? Mm-hmm. But yeah. they forget about the time that it takes to the back and forth with your architect until you actually drill down the plan. So that takes two to three months, depending on your architect's availability. And then you submit it to the city. Uh, it can easily take three, four months to get that approved. So you, you put that all together, you have six months six months at the, at, the, at the very least. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, then it takes you about a year to a year and a half to build a building in, you know, certain size, uh, the size that we're talking about. So you're already at a year and a half to two. And then it takes you about six months to sell. CO, um, all, all, the, all the final inspections, paperwork, condo books. So you're talking two to two and a half and it's good to add an, an extra six months as a contingency, you know, just in case. So when yeah. I when I underwrite a property, that's what I take. You know, many times, uh, commercial brokers, uh, when I asked when they present me with a deal, and I asked, well, what are the what was the underwriting that was done? I'm amazed to see that the financing cost that they're taking is half of what I'm taking. You know, they usually you, you guys are usually pretty good on the soft cost, hard cost. Um, and those types of things, but financing always has to be more conservative, because financing at the at the last six months of the project can easily cost you half a mil, because at that point Taken. your loan is fully drawn, yeah. yeah, and it's enough. You have a small delay from the department of building or whatever the case may be to take another couple of months, a couple of millions of dollars of loans with today's rates. Wow, easy to do the math. Yeah. You know, I was just presented with a deal on. On uh, where was it? Great location, on Union Williamsburg. Uh, I believe it was 
can't remember the exact number. It doesn't matter. A corner, <laughs> a corner lot on Union Avenue. And yeah, that was exactly the situation. Great property, but the, the underwriting that the brokers did, it wasn't you. It's a different company. Uh, was 30% of what he should have been. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so it seems like Williamsburg is your kind of niche. It's more specifically what we call like the Italian section mm-hmm. of Williamsburg. Um, I'm just curious to know like what makes the Williamsburg Greenpoint Market... What makes it so attractive? I mean, I've lived in Williamsburg for eight years. Right. I, I, you know, I love living there. But I'm curious to know your opinion from a developer's point of view. Like, why is that such an attractive market compared to the rest of Brooklyn and part and Manhattan too? Okay. Yeah, that's a great question. Look, Williamsburg, Williamsburg, and particularly East Williamsburg presents a real opportunity because if. Uh, from most areas in East Williamsburg, you're literally 15 to 20, 25 minutes away from every destination in mid-Manhattan, mm-hmm. okay? But you can purchase an apartment uh, for hundreds of thousands of dollars less than what it would cost you not only in the city, but also in prime Williamsburg. Prime Williamsburg prices today reach eight. Some comps are close to 2,000 on yeah. some of the new condominium yeah. sites in North. So East Williamsburg, it's just a, a you know, minute's walk from those areas. You can save a lot of money. So it's only a matter of time mm-hmm. of when those prices will catch up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the answer to your question is really transportation and proximity to those areas. Mm-hmm. Not to mention the fact that East Williamsburg became a hub of coffee shops and art galleries, and you almost f- don't oh, feel the need as much to to go to Bedford Avenue and 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 Broadway in the city anymore. You know, yeah. it's has such a good vibe. Feels even a little bit more, I would say, open, sunny. Does feel more open, um, <laughs> right? Yeah. So yeah, it's I, got I, a really I feel nice that's vibe. a big advantage. A disadvantage is parking. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a disadvantage is parking. I feel that um, that's kind of the next big thing. Is that a big pushback you get from the boutique side of things? Surprisingly, like no. That, mm-hmm. Surprisingly, no, because still many of the youngsters, I would say, that buy apartments with us, they don't even own, yeah, a they car. own a car. They rely mm-hmm. on the public transportation. But if I would build a family-oriented or- building, I would definitely think about parking. So we're now building 390 Manhattan Avenue, yeah. and we're building, you know, to uh, 219 Frost. Uh, and one of my ideas on Frost was to to do uh, a couple of parking spots on the first floor, which we can do because we we merge, you know, we keep the those properties on the same zoning lot. Because if it's just a 25 footer, the code does not allow you to put a parking spot. You need at least a 45 frontage. So that's a, that's another. Cool the parking thing. spots go for money too, right? Like in my parking. building, there's some parking spots for eighty thousand dollars. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The it goes it goes for a lot of money, um, and they also make the unit sell. Yeah. Because it's very rare today uh, to find <laughs> a, a good building in Williamsburg, Greenpoint, the good areas that have that provides this. Do Do you feel like? Like the the demand is changing. Like you, you you mentioned, we've mentioned a number of times since we've been talking. Like youngsters buying these yeah. units. Like that might be like a single person, a young couple. Right. But 
I don't know. In my in my head, I just feel like the main demand drivers in New York City is is evolving, and I feel like people are coupling up. People are having kids. People need more space, um, and so it, it just makes me wonder if like where the demand is on the condo side. If you need to re reimagine the configurations, I feel like I feel like the townhouse market is just going crazy. Yeah, and people just want to have like extra space and, and the outdoor space yeah. and like how does that factor into like your view on on the condo market yeah so you know, that's that's a good question i i i agree with you a hundred percent people will always prefer to go for the townhouses the thing is it's an expensive product right you know it's a lot more expensive most of those townhouses if they're renovated you're talking in the millions if if you know if they're unrenovated then you need to renovate them so it doesn't speak to it's just not a viable option. I mean, if they're renovated, they're going for four, five, six, seven, or more. <laughs> Ex- even, all, all over the all place. All over the place. Yeah. In, in the prime long, areas of They Brooklyn. take longer to sell, too, right? Like, when, when, when you resell them. They take longer to sell. Yes, everybody wants that, but not everybody can afford that. And that's the reason why they're going for the condos. But what, what, what I tr- try to do is to give them that feel as much as I can. So I would try to create outdoor space for every single unit in the building. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would try to do big balconies, you know, uh, connect yards with apartments. You've seen, yeah, you've seen what I do. How big is one? Balconies, would you like to do? So, so the city allows you to go up to seven feet from the face of the building. Um, I don't know why, but developers don't usually take advantage of that. Um, I definitely take advantage of that every inch. The code says you're allowed to, the, your balcony cannot exceed more than 50% of your the width of your facade, and it can extend seven feet, up to seven feet from the face of your building. So if you have a, a 40-footer, you, you know, you can do a 20 by seven. Beautiful. Uh, feet. Balcony. Yeah. It's 100, yeah. 450 square feet. It's the size of a room. Yeah. yeah. So that's what I do in those buildings. Um, Got it. The roofs, the yards, yeah. you know, plays a big factor. Okay. Yeah. But you, you think you think the condos are just the fabric of New York. They're here to stay. People people need need that price point, that yeah. amount of space. and. Absolutely. You it's, see a lot of demand for it, I the see, condos? I see in, an increasing amount of demand for it, yeah. <laughs> unbelievable amount of demand for it. And, wow. you know, it's, it's, it's kind of crazy to see yeah. with, with everything that went on lately with the interest rate. I mean, they're literally doubled, right? Yeah. People used to get mortgages for three. You're talking six and seven. In some instances, if the credit is not as good, you're talking eights. People still. Have prices gone you know, down? People still buy. Prices came down on 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 specific type of product. Prices did come down, even in the good areas, and more so. It takes longer to sell, but it still sells in yeah. the good areas. It still sells. So, what I'm seeing is the strong areas which attract an audience that has uh, obvious. It's I mean, you don't have to be a, a rocket scientist to get that, but they have just more financial ability. It's still they transact. Those areas that people are more heavily relying on mortgages, uh, it affects a lot worse. You know, places like uh, Bedstein and, and Bushwick condos, and 
and south south from those areas as well. It takes a lot longer to sell. It does affect dramatically on prices. It's just because people are heavily relying on those mortgages. Mm -hmm. on, on Williamsburg and Greenpoint, you still have cash buyers, um, and you have people, most of the buyers that come to me, they make hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. Google workers, Microsoft workers, high-tech workers, they have that ability. So they just try to shrink down on the mortgage, thinking, okay, we'll refinance when the interest rate goes down. Got but it. they have that ability, and since there's not a lot of inventory, we're seeing transactions. Slower, but we're seeing transactions. Uh, so those those areas are just stronger. Where are the buyers moving from? Like, are they already living in Brooklyn, or are they moving from Manhattan? A lot of them are moving from Manhattan. Um, I see a lot coming from the West Coast as well. I see a lot of uh, buyers coming from the West Coast or the East Coast. Um, and, and a lot of them are just first-time home buyers. Yeah. That, you know, they, they rent, and they, they've wanted to, to purchase for a long time. Yeah. And the interest rate went up, uh, so they waited. But now they've kind of seen, hey, you know, the interest is not going anywhere. At least it kind of stabilized in a way. Uh, so they're coming back, realizing that it's probably not going to go down the, in, in the next couple of years. Um, these, these are people primarily in their 30s? These are people primarily in their 30s, yes. I, That's what I, I see. I see this as the biggest opportunity in New York City right now. I, I, I just feel like there's so many young people that have been renting for so long and they're finally making enough money and they're getting to the points in their lives when they're going to they're gonna put down roots. And I think if you can just deliver product for the end user, um, I think that's where just there's so much value. And there's right. the amount of demand towards the end product, I, I just can't believe it. Yeah, and, and I still think it's a smart decision from the end user, despite the high price, the, the price that seem to be high all the time, yeah. but they keep getting higher because of those yeah. areas. Um, you know, people that purchased an, a, a one bedroom for me just a year ago already made a hundred, two hundred thousand. Think about wow. that. Yeah. If they rented, you know, they, they would not have made that money. Yeah, so the argument is to be made, will it continue? I, I think, think it will. I think it has. Yeah. For the next five years or more, I think it has a lot of legs. Yeah, um, I, th I think it's just really interesting. I, I think, think not only it will continue, I think when interest rates oh, yeah. decrease a bit, the value is going to go higher even more in those areas. You know, that especially those areas that are close to the subway. Mm -hmm. I really see a significant advantage... A person that goes to buy a home, I would definitely recommend to buy something that's in close proximity, walking distance from the subway, uh, because those areas, it's very hard for those for the value of those properties to go down. Very, very difficult. There's not a lot of them. Mm -hmm. It's just not a lot of them. I, it's just so fascinating how all these young Manhattanites are just buying in Brooklyn. Like Bro Brooklyn is just such a beneficiary of, I don't know, just everything going on in the market. And I guess just like... Right. Who like the population of the city and these people, these millennials that you see that also here. Yeah, they want to yeah. stay here. They don't want to move to to New Jersey or Long <laughs> Island or or Connecticut. They want to. They're urban people. They yeah. like this lifestyle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're gonna I'm have sure. families in the city. I think too, as somebody who sold properties in Manhattan and Brooklyn, that in Manhattan there's just no land left to really to really build. 
and everything that gets built is extremely expensive. It's very hard to have a car here. Um, whether and in Brooklyn, like you can actually almost live like a kind of hybrid life of you can have your car, you can get in and out of the city, you know, pretty quickly, um, and but as well still have that urban life, you know, yeah. within your ten minutes from Union Square. Yeah. So I think it, it really gives you kind of both like best of both worlds. Yeah. Li living in Brooklyn. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And then I mean, on top of it, Williamsburg. Now, if you just go down North Six, it's base. You're basically on Broadway and Soho at this point. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's it's just really no no difference at this point. So, it's it's just crazy how much the neighborhood, uh, Williamsburg in particularly, has changed within like the last 10, 15 years. It's, yeah. it's insane. No, you nailed it. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's exactly right. The, what you just said about uh, being able to have a car and purchase an apartment that's lower priced, um, but still just being across, you know, you can get yeah. there in a couple of minutes, no, no problem. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to. You have everything you need uh, near your home as well if you want to. So, And that, I think that's what separates Williamsburg from so many different markets. I mean, you have everything that you need in that area. You have the restaurants. And you still I mean, live in the financial district. I still <laughs> live in the financial For district. I, I, like, I like walking to work. Can't, I can't, like walking to work. You can't but. convince his wife to move out to. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a tough <laughs> conversation. But, I mean, they, Williamsburg has the best restaurants in probably New York City. I mean, any list you look down, yeah. I would say Williamsburg is, like, always in the top ten. There's yeah. at least four or five of them. Right. And they're always new. There's always new ones coming up. So... Um, I think that's a huge draw. I think going back to what you were saying in terms of the houses, I think one of your biggest competitors are obviously some of these home buyers. Yeah. They're buying these buildings for more than what a developer would pay for. The houses they, that he's tearing yeah, down. Yeah, I mean, the houses that he's tearing down. A lot of these people from Manhattan or Williamsburg, they like the houses as is. They're just going to renovate them. Yeah, you're right. That, that really changed after the pandemic, it too. It really changed after the that's pandemic. Because they're getting, their, they're getting their square footage. They're still getting it for 1.9, just a little bit higher than what maybe some developers would pay right. for it. So they're just inching out and winning, but they're getting a full they're house, and they're, getting a, and they're getting a big backyard. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. I just saw a deal on, where was it, in Greenpoint on Eckford Street. Maybe it was in the 60 or 62. It's just a house, a tiny house. You're talking about a, a 20 footer or something like that on a, on a 67 feet deep lot, uh, run down, all two family, low ceilings. Somebody paid 2.1, 2.2 for this. Mm -hmm. I mean, as a development property, I wouldn't pay more than, I don't know, half yeah. <laughs> because of a price per square footage, you just can't. <laughs> Uh, yeah. And, you know, that's a, a prime example. People come, and they, there's not a lot of these in the good areas. Uh, those townhouses, even if they're unrenovated, they have a market. It's yeah. A market. As a broker, that's how that's how we tend to lose deals, or the only way we do lose deals is that way. I mean, yeah. countless yeah. of si countless situations on Skillman Avenue that we've talked about, a 25-footer or a building on, on Concilia, like these buildings that just get bought by homeowner yeah. or someone who's going to make it their home and they'll and they'll renovate slowly they're okay with dealing with what they have right now and then they'll slowly renovate so it's not all up front for them but yeah. um, they're making sense of these prices yeah I feel that those properties that are smaller are almost like you know it's it's not even a, a, an investor's market now because yeah. if if you talk about a even a, a 25 by a hundred there's not a ton more value to an end user than a 20 by 70 lot. 
right? So an end user would probably pay a similar mm -hmm. price. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. You know, that's why a 20 by 70 lot is, is you know, you can't. Nothing you can do. But a that. 25 by 100, an end user might say, well, that's, you know, I don't see, I, I'll just buy a little bit of a smaller property. It's still very big for me. So that's where we come in. Mm -hmm. And we have more like 110 Eckford that we did. Uh, yeah. And, and those other properties. Yeah. For, for a long time, the, pro the houses were worth more as development sites than as, as houses. So we were able to come in and basically get these no, owners, you know, half a million dollars more or whatever it is than, than what any of the residential brokers or any of the end right. users would, would do. But, you know, getting to this point in like, in like Park Slope, for example, um, there's close. Well, there's street, there's street, well, there's streets that aren't landmarked yeah. where you have these okay. 25 by 100s and you have like a two or three family brownstone on them. Okay. But the brownstone is worth so much more than you know, what it'd be worth as, as a teardown, as a piece of land. Yeah, so that's a, that's a segment of the market that it's always just gone to the end users. It's never been something we've been able to kind of get our hands on and sell to developers. But Williamsburg was so interesting. And, and we did this throughout Flatbush as well, where yeah. just the developers were able to put a price per buildable on it where it made sense. And we were able to get the owner's prices where it made sense for them to sell. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm with you on that. I think mm -hmm. you're, you're right. But hopefully we'll still, you know, still have... We'll still have some, some stuff that we can buy and develop. Ultimately, these neighborhoods, the reason why they attract the developers to begin with is because they have so much air rights. Mm -hmm. yeah. so those houses are small, and there's a lot of uh, square footage to be added onto them. You know, so Do you ever develop um, in zoning besides R6B? Yeah, of okay. course. Uh, we did uh, R6s, R6As, um, R7As. Yes, all over the place. Okay. Very nice. Yeah. I think like prospect, what prospect is R6A? Pros that's uh, prospect is actually an R6B, but 44 box, for example. 44 box, it definitely was. Uh, yeah, 16 is, an R, is an R7 and uh, 1230 Bedford is an R6A, which gives you an FAR of three since it's a wide street. Um, Bushwick predominantly is R6, which you can do community facilities bonuses yeah um, mm -hmm. so yeah various types of and we're you know we keep searching for the for the larger ones yeah yeah that seems to be a trend that everyone's kind of going down just going into the more larger sites and yes. that's another challenge <laughs> obviously the 25 footers are kind of being forgotten about and in a market like this everyone's looking for something much more substantial yes exactly um yeah which is makes our job a little bit harder but it's okay <laughs> yeah i mean it'll it'll expand yeah right it always expands absolutely um are there other neighborhoods or locations that you're really intrigued by it's a good question i mean i've i've never really was that much interested in the southern part of brooklyn for some reason uh, I'm definitely interested in crossing the river and doing some stuff in the city. Yeah. I've looked over a couple of properties um, this year. Uh, and just North Brooklyn. Uh, I love mm -hmm. North Brooklyn, Williamsburg, Greenpoint, uh, Prospect Heights, Park Slope. Yeah. Uh, those those neighborhoods uh, I work a lot at, Clinton Hill. Mm -hmm. I just know the, the, the type of product that's needed there and... Um, and, and the market very well. You know, real estate is very niche-like. It's very micro. Mm -hmm. you know, every neighborhood, sometimes every street, uh, has a different value. Definitely. To it. 
so it's very important not to just jump to a different location that you've never developed before mm-hmm. before you do that that really good research on. Yeah. Just to make sure you're not making a mistake. Yeah, for sure. What, what was your favorite, favorite project that you've done? The favorite projects that I've done. Um, what was like all time? You know, all of them are my children. I love them all. <laughs> <laughs> I really do. Good answer. You, you can ask which ones, which ones I liked less. Um, these are more popping up to my to my mind. Um, I would say six five eight Washington Avenue. I love. Okay. It's not sold yet, but it's a corner property. Uh, it's a corner property in uh, Prospect Heights. Um, it's just a nice piece. Has a store on the first floor. Uh, three large condos, one per unit with an elevator that goes directly into the unit. So I love that one. Cool. Um, the reason why I like that so much was because there was a huge challenge in the beginning. And a beautiful thing came out of a very challenging situation because I bought that off of auction. And there was a demolition order on the property by the city. Mm. And I bought that at a very good price. But... Uh, you know, being too arrogant, I guess, I thought I would be able to salvage from the hand of the city pretty easily. And a week after the auction, crews were coming in the building, started knocking it down. So I had to fight tooth and nail, uh, speak to the commissioner of the Department of Buildings almost on a daily basis, hire engineers um, to give uh, opinion letters and stuff like that to stop everything that was going on. I couldn't believe I, how fast that the wheels of the HPD were working to, to knock down this building. Wow! Uh, because the 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 city awards contracts to to those demolition contractors mm-hmm. uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars to knock those down. So they have a huge incentive to go and knock them down immediately. But fortunately enough, I was able to stop. I was able to get a seven day stay and then a thirty day stay and then a, a sixty day stay. And, and slowly but surely, I was able to stop. But if I was not able to, uh, you know, I would have, I would have probably uh, lost a lot of money. So mm-hmm. you know, it turned out to be a very successful project, but it came out of a very challenging yeah. situation. That's one of my favorites. Yeah. So you so you said you came over from from Israel. You're obviously Israeli. I'm half Israeli, um, and. It, you know, us as, you know, from doing this for over a decade now, it's kind of amazing to see, like, how many developers are Israeli. Israel right. is a very, is a very very small country. It's, like, about yeah. the size of New Jersey. Right. And, how, to see, and it's just amazing to see, like, how much investment has come from such a small country. What do you think it is about Israelis that make them such good, de- oh, well. such good developers? <laughs> and why do, they li- why do they like to build in, in New York? Compared to building in Tel Aviv, I mean, hang on, they they build. These are guys that are doing condos. Yeah, it's mostly it's, it's like, mostly condos. Mostly like, condos. Yeah. yeah, like the Orthodox guys are building Rentals. rental buildings, and Israelis are doing the condos. Yeah, it's so crazy how much of a difference it is. Like they won't even cross. So yeah. so so what is it? What, 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 I mean, whew, I am trying to think of a good answer. You know, 
First of all, there's not only Israeli developers, no, right? I, yeah, 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 of course, of course. Of course. There's, of other, course. there's other ethnicities <laughs> yeah. that, that do the same thing. Of course. Uh, but definitely there's a very strong appeal for Israelis to do real estate. It's something in the, in, in the blood. You know, Israel is one of those countries that people like to own. You know, there's, there's countries in the world, you can see the statistics. Some countries in the world, it's mostly rent, people rent, or it's like half and half. In Israel, people like real estate. It's it's something ancestral. That's a, that's the word for it. Yeah. It's it's like people want to own real estate and have this attraction to real estate from from the beginning. A, a lot of the population in Israel, if they don't, they're somewhat involved in real estate, whether they they purchase a property for themselves or they invest in real estate out inside Israel, outside Israel, all over the world. So Israelis are not only in New York. You'll see. You'll see uh, uh, a community of Israeli developers almost in every part of the world today. Yeah. South America, East Europe, West Europe. I mean, you'll see it all over the place. So it's just a very strong connection between real estate and Israelis. I, I feel it's just something that uh, we attract to. <laughs> but um, do, you, do you not like the rental product? <laughs> it's a good question. I, I like it a lot. I, at the beginning, when you are looking to increase your equity, you need to do condo projects because you need to build, sell, um, and build up your equity. But you have to pay taxes, like income taxes on yes. capital gains, on yes, sales, which correct. I feel like keeps knocking you down, whereas the rental buildings, you know, people buy at value, sell 1031, it keeps their equity levels so much higher. You'll still make a lot more money quicker doing a condo uh, development, selling it, and then after a couple of years when you accumulate cash, it's a lot easier to move over to the to the rental side. Got it. And and you know do those uh, build and keep properties. Is that a long term goal of yours? Or yeah, is it, it is a long term goal. Yeah. It is a long-term goal to create a, a larger portfolio of income-producing properties. Uh, now it's less and less appealing here because of all the tax abatement programs, ex- you know, expiring. Yeah. So it makes oh, it more it's, difficult. It's tough right now. Yeah. Yeah. Makes it tougher to make sense. Um, but yes, that's that's the reason why I went this route to begin with because that's guys. really the only way to accumulate. Uh, equity. A lot, a lot of guys, I mean, when interest rates were low, they were buying, and, and when there's all these value-add plays, they're they're buying, adding value, and then just taking out a max-out refi and, and using those proceeds to go to another project and go to another project. So they'd end up with all these buildings that are levered up all the way, but yeah. they'd, they'd keep using, recycling the money in and out of deals, in and out, yeah. and then they're left with a portfolio of 10, 20 buildings. And right. But don't forget that it, it depends where the money comes from, how you source the money. For sure. So if, if I work with, you know, I, with a group of, in a $2 million deal, I work with a group of 20 investors. Each guy, you know, get, gives me $100,000. These people don't care about holding the building and mm-hmm. refining and stuff like no, that. No, they want their money back. They want their money back with, with a hefty return. So the only way I can give them what they want is by exiting. Yeah. If I refi, I, I, you know, in most cases, you don't get the all the equity out. Even you no. know, you leave some, some of it in. Yeah. Nowadays, and it's especially. a longer, it's a longer, it's a longer term strategy. 
So that doesn't really work yeah. when you source the money this way. Makes sense. Now, if you build up your own equity, then you partner with a friend yeah. or another partner and it's your own money, mm-hmm. or you have partners that share the same strategy with you. It fits more, I feel the, the, the rental play fits more uh, smaller groups um, that work with like-minded people that that's their strategy. Yeah, or private investors. Or private investors, mm-hmm. exactly. So, you know, it depends how you source the money. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, all right, well, we've been talking for a while. What yeah. else do you guys want to talk about? Anything? <laughs> what else did we not cover? Yeah, that's a good question. You guys can think of anything? I, th- I think um, I can't I'm a lot of questions. I can't believe your favorite deal wasn't from us, but it's okay. <laughs> I'll get over it. <laughs> uh, but, you know, the, the, the my, my current favorite deal is from you. Yeah. The current, yeah. Love that deal. That's a crazy deal. Yeah. Well, I think in a, in a market where everyone's like looking for bigger deals, right? Everyone, every conversation you have, it's like, don't show me the 25 by, 25 by 100. Show me a 50-footer, a 75-footer. Show me bigger deals, which obviously they're very hard to do. Yeah. But you were creative enough and obviously right your place, help. right time With as your well um, managed to get yourself a bigger deal. Where right. a lot of people would have probably just passed it off because a lot of people did. And it just said, not for me, not for me. You look, you got very creative. And That's the way you do it in Brooklyn, really. To connect. Yeah. To connect uh, properties together mm-hmm. to create a larger deal. Yeah. Because most of the lots are small. Yeah. You most know? Of the so that, small. that's really uh, one way of doing it. You can't always guarantee that it'll succeed. Because yeah. you can't always buy your neighbor. But sometimes it works. And here it did. Yeah. Definitely here. It worked in a big way, which was great. Yeah. Getting a beautiful five family out of there. One and of we did favorite. a subdivision. Yeah. It's actually my first subdivision. So it's another thing to to you know to add to the belt. Transfer air rights. Tra- uh, that that I did many times. Okay. But to uh, subdivide a land in a certain way, there's a lot of requirements to that. So we've learned that through that process. Um uh, so that's that's something I could definitely future and it's also it's a challenging process i mean we've had multiple conversations about it but the only reason i knew it was even a little bit challenging was we sold the building on Driggs avenue where another developer did the same thing and he kind of vented to us as well of just like how challenging it <laughs> actually is and when he went through that process as yeah. well yeah the city has a lot of requirements when when you want to subdivide a lot uh be, especially when you know one of the structures is non-conforming mm. Because the house is not conforming. It's built on 100% of the property. But it has the side lot as light and air. It's built, how deep is it? It's 100 foot, and the first floor is built 100 foot. Ah. But it's only a residential zoning, so you can't Mm. do that. Mm. That's grandfathered in. But once you cut, now you have your own separate tax lot, now you have to comply. So I have to chop it, and there's certain rules and yard regulations. The minute you chop, you create two new lots. And those new lots need to comply. Mm-hmm. So the building that is vacant and is built 100 feet deep, you're cutting. I'm cutting that the back order, half off. Correct, in order to comply with light and air and yard regulations. Zoning what goes regulations. into like the uh, the structural components of cutting off like the back half of the property? Is that like a big issue or not? Nothing, nothing too crazy. It's not too crazy. Uh, not the easiest thing in the world. You know, would have to remove brick by brick. Um, probably do some support, some lateral support on the sidewalls, 
while we're removing the back walls. Uh, but it's doable, totally yeah. doable. Got it. Yeah. So you said you were an accountant. Yeah. So how, how, how did you get to know construction so well? Like, what, like I'm sure that was a, yeah. that was like a mean, big learning curve. It, it was, it was. Uh, like I said, when I came here, I started as a project manager and for an Israeli group. Yeah. And the way they do it is just throw stuff at you. Um, so, you know, they naturally assume because I was a CPA, I know how to build a building, <laughs> which I don't know why they did that. Uh, but they, they, you know, they gave me a set of plan and they, they showed me the address and they told me just, you know, be on your way. So now I had to uh, start reaching out to the architects and the engineers and the banks and the investors. Um, it, it was it was a toughening experience, but because I, I dealt with everything, that's how I was able to learn so quickly. Um, all the tricks of the trade. Got it. So I was just handed a set of plans and a piece of land. Wow. That's the best way to do it. <laughs> it really is. Yeah. <laughs> I, I guess nice. I'm, I'm interested. How did you, how did you find like a lot of people? Obviously, everyone wants to build something and be a developer. But like, how did you find the proper GC, the proper architect to like work with you? Because I, I think that stuff is obviously the, probably some of the most challenging. Right. Because to find a GC and one that you don't have to stay on top of, right, or one that you know is actually doing his job. Yeah, absolutely, and especially in those smaller projects, you know, it's it's one of the biggest things. If you hire one GC to do the entire thing, uh, it takes up a lot of the profit margin in those smaller deals. So the way most guys that build those, you know, uh, smaller sized buildings would do, uh, they would break down the job. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they would either be their own GC, they would be their own GC, basically. They would break down the job to their own plumbers, electrician, and you build your crew over time. Yes, you have some bad experiences with subs, so you replace them mm -hmm. over time. You keep the good ones, and you kind of create that good system going on. Um, and that's how I do it. I have a GC license, mm -hmm. so I pull my own permits. I have my own insurances. Um, and uh, the subcontractors are working directly under this company, so I don't have to go and, fa and find a GC. Okay. Uh, it's not necessarily a bad choice. Um, but it's definitely going to cost you more. Mm -hmm. Definitely going to cost you more. For sure. Could, could be worth it for some people to pay yeah, more yeah, to, to not have to deal with the headaches yeah, yeah. as long as they get the right the right person to yeah, do it. Yeah, it, it all comes down to the numbers. Yeah. Um, and time is a big factor. Yeah. If a GC can save you time and you save on the interest. Good point. Then, you know, you might pay 100 or 200 more on the construction side, but you'll save it on the financing side. Really so it's yeah, but you can definitely, you know, going back to Donald's question, you really have to research the guy just like anything else. You have to see what work he did before, uh, because when you get stuck with a person that's not very good, um, that's a big deal to development project. A non a non performing contractor can really delay your project significantly, costing you a lot of money as well. Um, oh yeah, you know so. That's and, and the headaches. And, and the headaches, yeah. you know. Um, so, yeah, you got, you got to use somebody that has previous experience and can prove it to you. You got to know how to ask him the right questions. How does he deal with certain issues if they come up? What type of machinery he uses? Um, mm. Does he sub out the work? Does he have his own workers? 
Does he have a project manager on his behalf that's going to control the job? You know, so th those ki those kinds of questions are really, really important. Interesting. Yeah. All right, cool. I think we can, unless unless there's anything that you'd like to bring up separately. We got to keep something for the next podcast, right? All right, let's keep it, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I'm Absolutely. sure um, it was fun, so I'm sure we'll no, have more. No, this was great. I think, I think we all learned a lot. And, um, Me too. Yeah, the, the, the experience that you have and the ability to handle just all the aspects of this development uh, process is amazing. Thank you so, so yeah, much. Congrats, yeah, congrats on all the deals. Absolutely. And let's keep it going. Yeah, yeah, let's keep it going. Thank you guys for the amazing work that you do and the, you know, I just enjoy, I can't explain in words how much I enjoy working with you. I found a friend in Donald. And in, <laughs> Thank you. And you're just in and it's just, it's good. You guys are professionals. Yeah, thank Appreciate you. It. Yeah, absolutely. All right, that's it. We'll uh, see you next time. See you next time. Thanks, Eric.